Good morning, New Life family. Good to see you. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that our hearts are full. Your spirit has filled our lives, our hearts, with the work of Jesus Christ. And I I just thank you that in you, Lord Jesus, we live, we move, we have our being, our very being in you. So let it be so as we walk through this day. Help us to listen to you as the master you are, the life giver uh, you are. Meet us right here in this place, Lord, and let your word just come alive to us for each one of us and for us as a church family. We pray that you'd be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This morning, to introduce a new sermon series and today's message, uh, please give your attention to the screen. Identity. Identity. This fall, we are focusing uh, the preaching on our church's new vision, mission, and motto. And we've looked at the heart of each one of these over the past five weeks. So this morning, we're starting uh, a new sermon series, a seven-week series that I'm calling Our Identity in Mission. Our Identity in Mission. Uh, Who are we? 
Church, who are we? Family of God, who are we? Who are we? What are we called to do? This is really important. So how do we get it right? These messages are going to focus on the family aspect, the identity aspect of our vision and our mission, such things as uh, our vision to be a thriving family in the city where the broken from all nations are made alive and whole, finding hope and purpose in Jesus as a family following Jesus in the city, a family of nations. The title of the message today is Getting It Right. Getting It Right from Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to read uh, a few verses in the the first uh, 17 verses, starting with verse 1, Matthew 3. Follow along as I read. The words are up on screen. This is the word of God. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Verse 5, People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Verse 11, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came, verse 13, from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. With him I am well pleased. Our identity in mission, how do we get that right? Uh, I think it's striking how many of our contemporary debates and conversations in our society are about identity. If you listen closely, the word might not be used. But how many times have you heard such words as racial identity, national identity, ethnic identity, sexual identity, religious identity, social economic identity? A lot of conversation going on around the issue of identity. Are you lower upper class? Are you upper middle class? Are you lower middle class? Are you upper lower class? (laughs) We don't know where we are. What's our identity? What is your identity? At the heart of these many questions is the deeper issue, which assumes that there are some people and some things that define you. Let's just assume. Who gives you your identity? Is it your family? Is it your skin color? Is it your religion, your politics, your hurts, your achievements? What defines you? Are you the shoes you wear? Are you the clothes you buy? Are you the house you live in? Are you the car you drive? 
Are you the job you work? What is it that defines your work? Run with that for a while. <laughs> See where you go. Mm. Where do you find your identity? My goal today in this message is to help you dislodge yourself from finding your identity that way in those kinds of things. That's my job today. Because if that doesn't happen, If you don't get dislodged from finding your identity and all those other things, you'll never be able to find your identity in God and in the company of his people, in their mission in this world. You'll be so busy. You know how life goes. You will be so busy trying to find your identity everywhere else and to get your life right in those areas, you know, in other ways that you won't have much time or much energy left over to put Jesus and his people at the core of who you are in this world and what you do. Identity. What is your identity and where do you get it? You know, it used to be that a person's identity came as a kind of inheritance received from home, received from family. And when you knew your identity, you knew what your mission in life would be. In other words, your grandfather was a farmer, not because he went to a career seminar, uh, not because he decided one day that that would be a fulfilling line of work. He was a farmer because that was the identity he received from his family, his family before him, and from whom he also received his land and his farm. Isn't it interesting that today we think just the opposite? We think just the opposite. Now the assumption is that home and family are things you have to leave in order to decide for yourself who you are and what you will do. College commencement speakers peddle the same kind of drivel these days that I heard when I graduated from college. You'll hear things like this. You are among the brightest and best we have ever seen. Set your goals high. Dream your own dreams. You can be whatever you want to be. Well, they might as well have said, we have nothing for you. (laughs) You are on your own. It's all up to you. Good luck with that. (laughs) And we're getting that message more and more at a younger and younger age. You've got to decide. You've got to find who you are. It's all up to you. So today we no longer think of identity as an an inheritance that comes with and from a family. Instead, an identity is something we self-construct. That's what we do. We we build our own identity. And the way we do this self-construction is through our own all-important choices. We can choose where we will go to college, what we will study, where we will work, what kind of work we will do, uh, who we will marry, if we will marry, where we will live, what kind of values by which we will live. And if we don't like our choices, well, we can simply choose again and again and again (laughs) and again with our choices, so many using up our fleeting years trying to find a life and an identity we finally like. 
we are, by and large, self-made, independent operators. That's the American way. We are, by and large, self-made, independent operators. We don't know anymore how to be part of a family or how to do the give and take of a family in a healthy way, whether it is our family of origin or our church family. We don't know anymore how to submit our life to a mission greater than our own desires and our own pursuits. We don't know anymore how to live with somebody else, namely God, really in charge of our life and all of life. We don't know how to be all in with family life and mission in the church. We, we kind of do God and church on the side with ourselves and our activities at the center. We construct our own identity. We really make ourselves in our own image, the image we want for ourselves by the way, heavy input and influence from our culture and our friends. And then we kind of hope that things like God and church can be meaningful add-ons. So how have we fared? How have we fared with these lives and identities we construct on our own, untethered by the memory of the father, the father's house, the father's family, Well, we have found that it is very hard to create our own life and get it just right. Have you found that? Very hard to construct your own life and get it just right. Even when it feels mostly right, it's never right enough for long enough. It could always be better. Honestly, I have no interest in returning uh, to the days when it was assumed that you would be a farmer like your grandfather and his grandfather, but when we believe that life and identity is something we self-construct, we discover that along with that cherished notion comes the constant companion of judgment, especially self-judgment. For most of us, it is no longer our lot in life that judges us the most. Today, we're judged by the fact that in spite of having historically unprecedented freedoms and choices in our country, we still cannot get life right. It should tell us something. The way we're going about this is messed up. We cannot get our identity and our mission in life right the way it should be. Now, of course, we often do blame others for our problems very easy to do that. There's blame to be found everywhere. We blame the economy. We blame the government, our parents, our spouses, crime, student debt, leaders, church leaders. The list goes on and on. But if we're paying attention to our lives, at the end of the day, we usually judge ourselves the harshest of all. In spite of all the freedoms, we thought we had to be whoever we wanted to be. That's the message. You can do it. We cannot seem to choose our way into a life that is right enough. And so that brings us to John the Baptist. John the Baptist Baptist was preaching judgment by the Jordan River. And John was your basic turn or burn type of preacher. 
he warned with severe, harsh words that the time had come to repent because the Messiah was coming. And when he comes, said John, he's going to rain down fire from heaven. He will have a winnowing fork uh, in his hand, and he's going to use it to separate the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad, and the chaff is going to be burned up with fire. So you better choose to repent and clean up your life and make it right. He spoke with very harsh words. One of the striking things to me about John's preaching is that we're told in verse 5 that Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan went out to hear him. I mean, everybody was out there to listen to him preaching. Why was that? Why was that? Why has judgmental, finger-pointing, bad dog, bad dog type of preaching always been popular, even to this day? Bad dog. If you have a dog, you've said that. You've pointed your finger. Bad dog. Some sociologists and historians have speculated that the churches of judgmental preachers are full because the listeners assume the preacher is judging someone else someone they do not like, and actually they like the idea of God smiting that person. (laughs) Personally, I don't think that's the whole story. I think we're drawn to uh, bad dog sermons because we think the anger, the finger-pointing, the judgmentalism that that preacher is right. Because judgment is what we know best. We feel it in our bones. We do it all the time. So a pastor went to the hospital to visit a new mother who had given birth the previous day. And when he arrived in her room, he found her in tears. He assumed that those were tears of exhaustion or maybe tears of happiness. But no, the reason for her tears was that her beautiful baby boy, her firstborn, had just been evaluated on the APGAR test. You know the APGAR test? They use it to evaluate newborns on a scale of 1 to 10 as to how healthy they are. And although this little boy was perfectly normal and healthy and beautiful, he scored an 8. He's only one day old, his mother whimpered, and he has already received his first B-. minus. Yeah. She was crying because she just believed deep down that as life begins, so it will continue We continue to judge and be judged. Judged by teachers, coaches, supervisors, bosses, spouses, friends. You know, we're judged by our parents when we're children. Then we're judged by our children when we become parents. Have you experienced that? But you know what? We are judged most of all on a daily basis by the person who keeps showing up in the mirror every day. And the judgment is usually the same. We're just never quite good enough. So, we take our place beside all of Judea and Jerusalem on the banks of the Jordan River, and we hear John the Baptist saying, not good enough. And we reply, amen. You preach it, JB. You preach it. Amen. See, John was calling the people to be baptized to own up to their sin. John's baptism was different from Christian baptism. 
And sometimes we get this confused. People were going out to John hoping, hoping against hope, that John's baptism would wash away their sins, would cleanse them, would purify them, so that they'd be okay and they could start over again. This was a very common practice among first century Jews. You find a lot of preachers out in the wilderness by the river calling people to come and be baptized and wash away their sin or else. Well, you don't like the or or else part, (laughs) so out you go. After the people came to John the Baptist and were baptized, what would happen? They would return home where, let's be honest, they would soon sin again with bad choices, evil thoughts, wicked words, destructive behaviors, it doesn't take long. And life would not be right once again. And so they'd have to go back to John for another baptism, or whoever was the preacher of the day, out by the river, for another baptism, and another, and another. And perhaps they felt they could get right, but somehow they could never stay right. We like John's message, or at least we think we understand it. I'm not so sure we do. But part of that message, it's a message that says, try harder, make better choices. You're not right yet. Keep trying. You'll get there. But haven't we been at this game long enough to realize we can never make ourselves good enough, just right There just has to be another hope. There has to be another hope for how we will define our lives, our identity. And thank God there is. That brings us to Jesus Christ. One day Jesus Christ, the Son of God who was without sin, he was the embodiment of being right. There was no wrong in him. He was the embodiment of being right, and that's what was on the minds and hearts of everybody out there. I just can't get it right. Jesus comes. He comes to the Jordan. And John the Baptist says to the people, look out, this is the guy. This is the Messiah I've been warning about. Get ready for the fire. But to everybody's surprise, and maybe to John's most of all, Jesus did not bring fire from heaven or a winnowing fork with him that day. Uh, There will be a day for that when he comes around again. But not that day. That was a different day. Why was he there? Why did he come to the Jordan? If he has no sin, no wrong, he's the embodiment of being right, why did he come? Well, he said he was there to apply for baptism. And John said to him, in essence, I can't baptize you. I can't do it. You're the standard of being right that we're all trying to meet. I can't do it. It doesn't make any sense to me, says John. So they argued about this for a while. And who do you think won that argument? (laughs) You argue with God? Who wins that argument? Jesus won that argument, as he always does. And then Jesus, this one who was without sin, this one who was perfect righteousness, he identified with us. He identified with us. 
in the futility of John's baptism to wash away our sin and get our lives all cleaned up and all right on our own. He identified with that. In that act, the Son of God was also baptized into whatever choice you may make in the futile effort to get life right. We do this all the time, and Jesus is right there. So so think of it like this. I mean, he came to be baptized, to identify with us in our not being right, being all wrong. He could have come to your graduation ceremony, your next job interview, a wedding, the birth of a child, the closing on a new house, the next move you make. But the point is this. Do you see the baptism of Jesus Christ is another expression of the incarnation of God with us. That's who Jesus is, God with us. He steps into the water of baptism and identifies with us. This is God with us stepping into the fact that we're all wrong. We get it wrong. We don't have righteousness. And he steps into the middle of that, the incarnation of God with us as one of us. He identified with us. Why would the Son of God, who was, frankly, expected to come as the judge, that's what they were waiting for, the judge was coming, why would he identify with those who were there because they'd already judged themselves not right enough? They knew that. They weren't arguing with that. They were there. It was because, as Jesus told John, And this is, of course, the kicker. This is why John said, okay, I don't understand it, but I'm going to baptize you. Jesus said, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. We could never do that on our own. So Jesus had to step into the waters of baptism and take all of that upon himself. It's a picture ahead of time of what he would do at the cross. Take all of our unrighteousness upon himself to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness. So we are not made right by making and pursuing better choices as individuals or as a church. Not by finding the right mission and then pursuing it in just the right way. There's a temptation to that. No, we are made right by God's choice to love us, to find us, and to make us his in Jesus Christ. When Jesus came out of the water, man, the heavens were ripped open and a voice was heard proclaiming, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. This is my beloved son, says the father. With him, I am well pleased. It's incredibly significant that Jesus does not receive heaven's designation as the beloved son until he identified with us in John's baptism. It's at that moment, as he identifies with us in our sin, in our unrightness, that he receives that designation, my beloved son. He doesn't receive that title at his birth. He doesn't receive that title in his early life. No, it came when he entered into our desperation, in an identification that is so total and so complete 
that you have to hear heaven proclaiming this about you as well if you are in union with Jesus Christ. This is the way the Father feels about those who are in union by faith, identified with his Son, Jesus Christ. You are the beloved daughter. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son. We are beloved ones in the beloved son. Do you see? That's the core of your identity. That's the core of your identity. And and if it's not there, nothing can take its place, ever. That's the core of your identity. Beloved daughter, beloved son of a heavenly father. That's your true inheritance. And that makes you part of a family. The father has a family. The family of this heavenly father. As we sang earlier in the service, you are not your own. I am not my own. You belong to him. I belong to him. And that means we belong together. We belong to the same father. We have the same savior. So it's not just Jesus and you. That's very popular in American religion. Jesus and you. That'll never, that's not it. It's Jesus and you. It's very personal. But it's not really a private thing. It's Jesus and you and us. We're, we belong together. We're the family of God. We're the beloved ones of God. Not because we finally figured out how to choose our way into making life right, doing mission right, because we tried a little bit harder. Look, we finally got it right. Everything in us cries out to want to be able to say that. Have you noticed that? Finally got it right. No, Jesus came because we could not get it right. That's the point. So we have to find our identity in him, that we are the beloved of God because we've always belonged to him. And in the baptism of Jesus, the Father has found us, made us family, brought us home. That's what our life is about. So Christian baptism is not about washing away sin so you get a a second chance, another chance to get life and mission right. Instead, our theology is that as Jesus identified with us and our judgment in his baptism, By grace, we are identified with him, with his righteousness, his forgiveness, his beloved status in our baptism. One of the early church fathers, a preacher named John Chrysostom, he proclaimed this to his congregation in these words, talking about the baptism of Jesus. He said, the heavens were opened to inform thee at thy baptism that this will be done, that you too will be a beloved one in the Father's family. Jesus will see to it. This is why we baptize our precious babies. It's a reminder really to all of us, not just to them, but to all of us, that before they can even begin to make choices or can pay attention to that You know that seductive mythology of our culture that says uh, their lives are only what they make of them? Mm. Before they can do any of that, we want them to know that their lives are already being made right by God's choice to love them in Jesus Christ. 
find your identity there. Mm. And to love them into his family. That they are not their own. That's the, that's the message. They are not their own. That they belong to a family of faith. They belong to a heavenly father. As do all who follow Jesus in the grace of God and the truth of God. So remember the baptism of Jesus and your own baptism when you are confused about who you are. When you're confused about your identity, look to the baptism of Jesus. Look to your baptism, your union with Jesus Christ. This is the core of your identity. It's so simple and so strong that you not lose your identity in the midst of all these choices in our culture. It's overwhelming sometimes. Remember the baptism of Jesus and your own baptism when you cannot make your relationships right or when you're fretting about how your body looks or how your body feels. Remember the baptism of Jesus and your own baptism when you do not get that job you really wanted Or when you've kind of knocked yourself out chasing a dream, but you cannot quite catch up to it, remember, none of those things could ever have defined you. They could never have forgiven you. They could never have fixed you anyway. Your baptism proclaims that you are already the beloved of God in Jesus Christ, identified with him. That's the key identified with him in his perfect rightness. That's who we really are. That's the core of our identity. And everything we do has to flow from that. We've got to start there. We've got to get that right. Or we'll just run off in a thousand directions doing a lot of good things, and we will not really know who we are in Christ and what God the Father has put us on this earth to do together as the people of God. So... That's who we really are, that we've been identified with Jesus Christ in his perfect rightness. We are beloved sons and daughters. That's who we really are, and our lives, our identity, our mission can never, never get more right than that. Amen? Amen. Let's spend some time having a conversation with God about these things. It's a time of prayer. I don't think there's probably a one of us here who doesn't need to do some business with God about our identity and where we're finding our life, where we're finding our worth, where we're finding our mission in life, what we're doing. You know, I think it's so good to be able to just create a little space right now, step back and say, Father, would you show me the ways in which I'm, I'm, I'm finding my life somewhere else and not in Christ? What does God want to do with that in your own life, in your own heart, in your activities, in what you do day in and day out? What's your identity? Where do you find your worth? Where do you get your identity? So let's do a little business with God.